this is the Masters of Cinema. My name is Joachim. Today, unfortunately, Tom wasn't able to join us, but with me I have Ian Schultz. Thank you so much for joining me, Ian. You're more than welcome. Um, you write for the the People's Movies Reviews, am I correct? Yes. Yes. And uh, you've been doing that for how long? Near the end of, of university is when I started, uh, so probably around three years now. Okay. And you you have a BA in film studies, correct? Yeah. What made you sort of go into that area? What made you like do something more than just keep film as a hobby for you? Uh, it's the only thing I really was any good at was like knowing about you know knowing about film and stuff. So I decided you know I should do film studies. I've I've been I've been obsessed with film since I was a little kid. I mean, like the first film that really, I mean, obviously when you're a kid, Star Wars and uh, really Wonka and those sort of films. But the first film that really kind of blew me away was my dad dragged me to see The Adventure of Baron Munchausen in the cinema. Oh, yeah. Uh, when I was like nine, and I didn't want to see it. Like so, um, he dragged me, and then it kind of blew my mind. And it was on this amazing thirty-five millimeter print. And that was like the first big, that was like the second time I realized that there was someone who was a director because I was a big fan of Time Bandits. So I was like, oh, it's the guy who made Time Bandits. So. Mm. You you come from America, correct? Yeah. But you moved here. Do you, was it before you started watching movies or was it after uh, you were? Well, well, kind of what happened was we didn't have TV when we moved. So okay. we just bought DVDs. So, you know, I had this great education of film just by watching films for, you know, since I was a kid, so. Do you remember, did you go to the cinemas in, in the States as well? Yeah, it was, it was one of the things which we did as a family a lot. And when I was a kid, it was, luckily the place was so open is there was this amazing uh, video shop called Movie Madness, mm. which is actually partly a film museum. And it's got, like, the ear from Blue Velvet, it's got the knife from Psycho, it has a mug romp. And we, I used to go there all the time, and they have like thirty thousand films, <laughs> at least, and like every film that's humanly possible to uh, rent. And uh, so that always was a big, uh, you know, that that really inspired me when I was a kid. Mm. Did you like notice any change in the? Of course, there was a big drop in selection. I would imagine when you got to to England. Just in the local DVD shop. Yeah, I mean, I, I was 10 when I moved here. So, you know, obviously, obviously for the years, my, you know, taste has developed and whatnot. So, mm. but yeah, I, my parents always had really interesting taste in film as well. So I always had sort of a good range of different films I, I watched when I was, you know, young. Yeah. Do you remember your first kind of experience with uh, Masters of Cinema? I, I think what the first one was, uh, I, I guess, made, uh, actually, I think Punishment Park, actually, was the first one that I bought, mm -hmm. uh, which I had heard about, and I always kind of interested in, 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 it's kind of a science fiction film in a way, and I think that was the first one which I actually went out and bought, and then Metropolis, and then M, and then uh, I got Blu-ray actually quite late on, and I, I think Repo Man was the first uh, Blu-ray I bought from Master of the Cinema. You sort of keep up with the releases, so you've been, uh, you know, about the October and November releases, so we can discuss those now. Yeah. On the on the 19th, uh, we get a dual format release, October 19th, uh, 
a box set of the Shohei Imamura Masterpiece Collection. And this basically just gathers all the Imamura library they have in a set before the rights go out. What's, what's your kind of thoughts about this sort of end of rights kind of reissuing of sorts? You know, it's a way for them to make some money on it, you know, before the rights go. Nothing, yeah. You know, it's fine. This is sort of um, a way of getting rid of kind of movies that would be l- slightly lesser sales, I would, I would think, um, films that they wouldn't necessarily... Uh, be able to ship off unless they did something like this, I would think. And I think Vengeance is Mine has been a pretty steady seller. Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, the transfer, is that the one where the transfer is quite uh, poor? I, have, I haven't seen it yet. I, I have it, but it's one of the ones I haven't watched yet. I think that's the one that Criterion uh, reissued on Blu-ray. It was earlier this year or late last year uh, with a much better transfer. But uh, another thing that kind of is a bit peculiar is that they decided to put all the booklets on a CD on PDFs. And... Uh, this I don't I don't know uh, how I feel about this. Hopefully that's not something they will do in future box sets. But maybe it's just to cut price and keep the cost down. Well, I, I know Aero has done some budget versions of some of the releases without the booklet, mm-hmm. and some of the re-releases have to do like the big limited edition. They don't have the booklet, so that might be. I don't know how much it costs to make a booklet. I don't assume it's that much, but it might you know overall might end up cost and quite a bit especially you know a very lengthy booklet for a bot set so yeah for people who haven't picked up any of imamura's films previously this is obviously a golden opportunity i think the the price on the box set is quite lower now actually so yeah, it's like 50 pounds or something yeah i'm surprised they haven't done the uh, pornographers yet oh uh, i haven't heard about that one this one triterion did uh, quite early i'm pretty mm. sure it's him who did that and I'm surprised they haven't inclu- been, you know, tried to get the rights for that. So mm. one Criterion film that they did get hand off was Cornell Wilde's *The Naked Prey*, and uh, I was reading about this one just before we started recording. Now, and the synopsis it kind of reminds me of *The Most Dangerous Game* in a way, where you have this this white man being hunted for game, basically, by this African tribe. Are you familiar with Cornel Wilde's filmography or as an actor or as a director or Naked Bray? I've seen High Sierra, but not... An, 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 oh, The Big Combo is fantastic. Okay. The, the Big Combo is one of the greatest film noir films ever made. I don't think I've seen that one, no. Definitely worth checking out. It's a really nice uh, Blu-ray transfer of it, actually. Hmm. It's, it's uh, often when they have uh, like a f- book on film noir, they often use it this fam- very famous still from The Big Combo. It's great use of shadow and light. Mm. I would imagine that when this came out in the 60s and the image of just a white man being hunted by this African tribe is quite controversial. <laughs> Definitely interesting to watch this. And I also remember Tom speaking about this looking quite spectacular on the widescreen. So definitely looking forward to this one. Supposedly the Cohen Brothers remade it when they were teenagers. Oh, really? Yeah. They should really include that <laughs> as an extra. <laughs> I don't think um, they're going to allow that to come out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
So on the the final release that we're getting in October is another dual format release. Um, on t- October the 26th, we get John Frankenheimer's Seconds, another Criterion title. And this will include two commentaries, one by Frankenheimer himself, which is on the Blu-ray of uh, the Criterion edition, and I think. it was recorded for the Laserdisc back in about 96. Yeah. So it's... It, and I, I remember you talking about it being quite dry when we recorded this last yeah, time. Yeah, it's, it's not as informative as it should have been. It's, it's you know, he's always a pretty dry interview. Mm. But I'm really looking forward to the other commentary. Yeah, Adrian Martin. Uh, I listened to his um, guest spot on the Cinephiliacs, um I think it was a couple of weeks ago now. And uh, he's just a, a really insightful um a film critic that really has some pointed views. So looking forward to listening to that one as well. Um, we also get a video interview with the uh, critic uh, Kim Newman, as well as a booklet with uh, essays from David Cairns and Mike Sutton as well. So I know Kim Newman's a very big fan. I know he put it in when he did he did one of those Criterion top tens, and he put it in mm-hmm. the top ten. So and he's always a good interview. So. Kim Newman, he's that UK-based yeah, critic, he, isn't he? Yeah, he, he mostly does like uh, horror films and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think also, I know. He also is. has written a lot, actually quite a lot of books as well. I've got his book on uh, post-apocalyptic uh, films, actually, hmm. called *In the Millennium*. So those were the October releases, and in November we are getting two Blu-rays. Uh, first one up is November the sixteenth, George Stevens's highly acclaimed western *Shane* with uh, Alan Ladd and uh, this will feature full-length commentary with George Stevens Jr. and Ivan Moffat and uh, I remember seeing this one back in uh, university when I did my film studies degree and uh, this is really a classic western um, with every detail that you can imagine uh, quite essential for the genre but I remember having some some issues with the uh, the boy in the film, but uh, quite annoying. But uh, other than that, it's uh, quite a quite a great film, actually. It's one of the I, I've only really seen Giant of George Stevens one, so I'm quite looking forward to this, and I have quite a soft spot for Alan Ladd. So, mm. uh, yeah, I think Giant is the only other uh, Stevens film I've seen, but I, I really do enjoy that one as well with uh, Dean and Hudson and Dennis Hopper. Yeah, that's an early role for him, isn't it? Yeah, like right after. That's, I think the first one he did was Rebel. I think. Mm-hmm. I believe so. I might be wrong about that, but. Yeah, I think you're. I think you're correct about that one. Um, and also on the November twenty third, we are getting a Blu-ray of John Ford's The Quiet Man with uh, John Wayne and Maureen O'Hara, and uh, this includes a exclusive video essay by Ted Gallagher. He's a forward scholar. And it also includes the making of Doc. And um, there's been quite uh, a discussion about which transfer they are making use of, whether it's the 4K transfer that Olive Films in the US used uh, a couple of years ago, or whether it's the UCLA version that um, some say is uh, better in quality, others say it's worse. So it's uh, both have pros and cons from what I've read. So. And Eureka, they hadn't issued, they haven't uh, issued a statement regarding what transfer they are using. They should just release both. It'd be a smart move. Yeah, that would be interesting to see kind of the differences between the two. If if the one isn't like vastly superior to the other, 
Arrow did that recently for uh, Nightmare City. They did two different transfers. That was sort of an interesting thing to do. Hmm. Um, I usually they're quite like John Ford with westerns, but of course, I've seen like films, uh, The Grapes of Wrath and How Green Is My Valley. So, of course, he's made other films, but I, I, I only, when I think of John Ford, my mind immediately goes to like Stagecoach and yeah, those kinds. Of... And my darling Clementine is, is yeah, of course, fantastic. And the searches, of course. Yeah. Um, but looking at these five releases, we are getting actually the October releases are dual format and the November releases are Blu-ray. So I don't know. It looks like they haven't settled on one kind of uh, format yet. I think it's down to the rights, I think, because Seconds has never been released in the UK before. Mm. And nor is The Naked Prey. Okay. So I think so that's what's happened with Medium Cool and some of the uh, and some of the other Paramount stuff. So I think it's simply what's been released on DVD. Yeah, and that makes it, sense. Yeah. So. And obviously, they can push more dual formats than they can Blu-ray, just because people are still buying DVDs. I don't know who these people are, but I occasionally, obviously, I occasionally buy a DVD once in a while. Oh, you do. I can't remember last time I did. Normally in like a charity shop. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so um, Repo Man, what, what were your kind of first impression when you watched this like crazy film? I can't actually remember the first time I, I saw it. I must have seen it when I was quite young. Uh, I, I definitely went back to it a lot because I was a big fan of Southland Tales. Mm-hmm. And that is very much a combination of like Repo Man, Kiss Me Deadly, uh, a lot of Philip K. Dick, which is a lot in Repo Man as well. And mm. so I went back to it a lot since when that came out in 2006. So I've, I've seen it many times since then. Hmm. And I, I still think the film, you know, plays really well. I, I watched it again this afternoon. Okay. Um, so this is the second time we are recording this episode. First time we got a bit of a computer glitch, uh, which caused our recording to crash. But I haven't actually had the inclination to go back to this film. Um, it is. I remember the first time I saw it. It was like. Nothing I've seen before uh, that that I can safely say. And I really did have some laughs with it. I really did enjoy the story. Um, I enjoyed the performances and everything. But coming back to it a second time, it it kind of lacked something for me. And I, I think we'll get into it as we are. We will go deeper into this movie. But there was something that was kind of missing for me. And maybe it was my own mood that I couldn't just find that right angle, angle into the film. But... It is definitely one of the weirdest and also one of the most beloved cult films of all time. And the film is based on his own experiences. Uh, he worked as an actual repossessor, car repossessor, with a friend in California. Is that correct? I believe so. I'm not, I, yeah. I'm not 100% sure, but I'm pretty sure I did read that once. And the film kind of, for me, feels like it's a very personal film in that it feels very observational it feels like alex cox has kind of lived with these weird characters and observed some some really weird scenes that he kind of meshes together and 
the film feels made up out of singular scenes. And there's no real feeling of a cohesion other than the overarching like science fiction plot that we are getting. But this is more like a selection of weird events that happen over the course of a few days in the 80s. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in the commentary for Sid and Nancy, I think someone said something really kind of genius about Alex Cox. I can't remember who it was, but the commentary for Sid and Nancy on the Triterion is absolutely hilarious because basically you get people who hate the film to do the commentary, hmm. who just think it's completely inaccurate because it is. <laughs> and uh, someone describes Alex Cox as bad David Lynch is good Alex Cox. I think that kind of sums him up really good. Yeah. Because he definitely, you know, there's certainly a, a lynchy, a surrealist vibe to a lot of his work. Mm-hmm. And it, a lot of the time it does seem like sort of cutoffs from David Lynch films at times. And that's kind of why I like it in a way. When you mentioned that, I can sort of, in my mind, I can sort of picture Wild at Heart as a Cox movie in a way. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's probably my least favourite of all of Lynch's Yeah, mine as well. Yeah. I I still haven't ever seen Dune. I've, you know, never quite been able to get through it, but... I have quite a soft spot for Dune, actually, but kind of in a... It's like a bad film in a good way. I don't know. (laughs) I have a promo from the newspaper somewhere. I I will watch it someday. Mm Mm-hmm. Um... This, um, The Reaper Man... What I did love about it was the like the weirdness and the strangeness of the film and how it kind of skews that view of the American dream and the Reagan America. Um, that, the themes of Reaganomics for me uh, was really what I was drawn to when I was watching this film, how it kind of plays on that, the way that everybody seeks to attain... Um, some sort of success and all believe that they can make it uh, which is impossible obviously and, so and the stuff they're trying to obtain are just so you know ridiculous that's what's so kind of great about it yeah you know, the car re- the car is a really shitty car it's not a good <laughs> car but you know because it's worth 20 grand you know everyone's trying to go get the you know the chevy or whatever it is yeah it doesn't really if you if you start to look at it uh, like objectively, you can't really understand how they are, or you get the feeling that they are deluding themselves just to get away from their everyday boredom, and have this sort of they're kind of convincing themselves that this will lead to some sort of happiness, so this will lead to success. Yeah, I I, I think that's great, you know sort of bit is is his parents who are who are so you know brainwashed by you know the christian televangelist tv which they watch mm. which is just one one of the great and, and i i realized that uh in the last recording i mentioned that there's a scene where they um are covering cobwebs he comes back and that's actually only in the tv version yeah yeah because i couldn't remember that when i when I watched it, I watched uh, the, the deleted scenes thing with the guy who invented the atom bomb today, mm-hmm. which is a very weird thing to have on the disc. But <laughs> Alex Cox with him, and they watched the deleted scenes. It's a very strange thing, and and that scene should have been in it. I mean, that scene is, I think, 
absolutely genius. Um, mm. But it, I, you know, I think it's you know really great statement of that time. I think you know, there's, I think there's only one other film really of that era that kind of gets you know that sort of Reaganomics as well as they live. Um, the the Carpenter film. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can't remember. I know I've seen it, but I think it's been like ten years since I've seen it. Oh, it's the, he gets the sunglasses and everything is like consumed by you know. Ah uh, yes. All the yuppies are aliens. It's just genius. <laughs> but this is in this film we are watching these people kind of fooling themselves with the the thought of being able to move upwards, and I I remember laughing quite hard at Kenny, that that mate of his, that is... The, the, the Napoleon Dynamite guy. Yeah, <laughs> he that's true. That in, in, the, in a couple of the features, he's like, they ripped my film off. <laughs> <laughs> he literally is Napoleon Dynamite. It's so weird. He's dreaming of going from a dishwasher to becoming a manager in two years. No, and no, that's no like... it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's a chip fryer. Chip fryer, yeah. okay, yeah. <laughs> even like even worse than a dishwasher. Yeah, but it, it's that thought of just if you just work hard enough, you can make it. And if you don't make it, it's it's not because you didn't um, didn't have bad luck or the st- circumstances you're in, but just because you didn't put enough hard work in. So it's all about being lazy and critiquing laziness. And the film is sort of I feel, I feel like on the one hand. It's making fun of that. Um, But on the other hand, it recognizes that this sort of the punk life and the anarchistic view, it isn't really contributing to any sort of change, but it just sort of, I don't know, kind of wastes time until you find something that actually means something to you. And that way you're not standing outside of society, but you're actually contributing. I I, I think to some extent just the punk, the whole punk thing of it is just like just a backdrop to the story i don't i think you know he was obviously into punk at the time mm-hmm. and he and he, you know the next time he makes a sit of nancy so and you know every film he's done he did straight to hell with joe strummer and people so he, he obviously has <laughs> a kinship with punk yeah and I, yeah and the, and the rest of the punks do come off as complete idiots um, yeah there's several scenes where he's kind of leaving the punk life behind either it's the the concert where he says i can't believe i like those guys or um when the the shop is getting robbed i think i think he mentioned something that kind of notices how just this guy i think it was his um former friend who was who was shot and he says something like he's wasting his life or something yes something like that um, but I also think that it kind of relates to this, I don't know, the Reaganomics of today where you have this sort of craze of like self-realization that is going on now where everyone needs to be the best person you can be and you have to train hard and you have to work and you have to make money and you have to be happy and have have a great husband and wife and be a great husband and wife and everything has to be like really positive and done with the right attitude and there's no room for like unhappiness or failure or sadness it's like society is kind of scared of slowing down and not getting everything you want and that's kind of i feel like that's a further kind of development of regonomics yeah yeah 
I, I, I would agree with that. Uh, and also, just looking at the name of the Repo Man uh, Corporation, the Helping Hand Acceptance Corps, it kind of underlines that disconnect between the reality that they are living in and this kind of regonomics idea that we have. Where it, it doesn't, obviously, this Repo Man Corps it doesn't help anyone. <laughs> they kind of make money off of other people's uh, unhappiness. But that, that's what Reagan was about. Yeah. You know, so you know, they, they, they all live in the Reagan dream of ripping off, you know, vulnerable people. Mm. For me, obviously, the first time I liked it, as I said, it, it really grabbed me. But when I watched it, like, for this discussion uh, a couple of times, um, maybe it's because the the 80s era that isn't really my era i grew up uh born in 84 so i grew up more in the 90s for me and i don't really have that nostalgia for the 80s and i'm not very like anarchistic or punk in nature so that aspect of it didn't really grab me and these are kind of entry points that cox has for the viewer that don't really work for me so i'm sort of left outside just watching these weird characters and observing them and I don't think it's necessarily I don't think it's a film's fault it's just that I I couldn't find that right connection with it this time around well the Maybe... funny thing about that is mm. um, when the film was finished uh, unsurprisingly the studio had no idea what to do with it <laughs> and they actually Cox and I think Nesmith and a couple of the other producers they actually went to some dinner and there was some army people there and eventually someone said oh we can't show this film in Russia and then the film only came out because the soundtrack was selling really well yeah the soundtrack is what kind of made this movie the the success it is yeah then you have Black Flag when they're still really good you've got Fear who were really good then and you've got the Iggy Pop song, of course, which is the opening song. Uh, you've got Circle Jerks. Um, who else is on it? Uh, and tons of other And I think the score is, is very un- underrated. It's really good sort of rip-off of Ernie Murakoni's scores at times, mm. which is obviously what he was going for because he's a big, you know, spaghetti western nut. So much so he's written a book about spaghetti westerns. So. Yeah, because he's he's working as a professor in Colorado yeah is it yeah Yeah. I think he has uh, finished actually recently okay so he's going more back to production he's doing a film now uh, the uh, Tombstone Rashomon which sounds quite good actually could be good could be good could be good could be good (laughs) hopefully Uh, but the the film um, it visually that's kind of what I take away from it the the Robbie Miller cinematography and just very interesting choices in color the way he shoots uh, at night um, and also how he he kind of has a relaxing frame it's mostly in two shots and master shots there's not much close-ups here there's, there's, no, allows, there's no close-up close-ups really at all in the whole film yeah it kind of it kind of gives us some breathing room and also supports that feeling of kind of observing these characters and it doesn't really try to attain some sort of deep, meaningful drama piece. It's just this selection of I, scenes. I think to some extent he was making an obvious comment on nuclear war 
which was obviously in the 80s, and it still should be an issue, but it's not. Yeah. But obviously, you know, this is, at, you know, the Cold War is still at its height. You know, he's, he's super paranoid about, you know, cold, about, you know, atomic warfare. Hmm. And obviously, you know, you know, the whole plot is because of, you know, it's this car which has atom bombs in the back. Yeah. Yeah, that's sort of the thing that I couldn't... I don't think I necessarily felt the metaphor he was trying to make other than, like, fear the proliferation of nuclear weapons. I think that's all he was saying with it, to be honest. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and and he was, you know, making the homage to Kiss Me Deadly. Yeah. that's I, I sort of got that reference, because that that is uh, blatantly obvious. Uh, and also, the, like, how... Pulp Fiction also draws from these two movies. And there's another one as well, um, uh, Southland Tales. Yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember seeing that um, when it first came out, but I couldn't... I, I think I had ho- hopes of a different sort of movie than what I was watching. Yeah. Uh, I, I really love Southland Tales, but I definitely can see why people don't like it. Mm. It is a completely mental film, and it was obviously cut to ribbons mm. by the studios. You know, it's the same thing that you know has happened so many times. You know, someone makes a film that is, you know, too strange for you know mass audiences supposedly. And yeah, I remember there being quite a discussion of whether a director's cut would be released. Uh, he wants to do it, I believe, but yeah. the studio just won't allow it. I think there's okay. a slightly longer TV version somewhere. Mm-hmm. I think the can cut was released on French television. Okay. Which, but all the special effects for the most part aren't included because it was basically a work print. Hmm. That's why it got booed at can, famously. Getting back to um, Repo Man, um, another interesting aspect was this use of the two characters, um, Bud, played by Harry Dean Stanton, and uh, the character Light. And you mentioned this last time, which I totally didn't get because I'm not very well versed in like beer brands in the, in the States, but Bud Light, obviously. Uh, these kind of references went way over my head. So. <laughs> but these, uh, the Bud and Light, these they kind of uh, represent two opposites for me, basically, where... Yeah, but he adheres strongly to this sort of repo code and he never does anything wrong and he's not stepping out of line. He's holding on to that American dream or illusion of working his way to the top. And Light, on the other hand, he's the kind of guy who throws the rules out of the window and just does whatever he pleases. Yeah, and he's the one who actually has a gun, which which, uh, Bud does it. Yeah, that's true. And he, you know, he breaks, he actually breaks into the cars, you know. Yeah. And it's interesting that these two sort of extremes, they both can work in the same company and there's no one thinking any less of them or there's no like real issue of how to uh, go on about your job just as long as you do your job. And it feels like the movie is about Estevez's character trying to strike that balance between the two because he's, he's like demeanor and his kind of view of the world it doesn't really have to change in order for him to work there but he doesn't happiness doesn't come with working for the reaper man 
he kind of figures out in the end Otto. So trying to strike that balance between um, kind of uh, leaving behind that anarchic nature but not completely following suit. But I would say Bud's equally sort of punk in his own way. How so? Well, he has that great line where he's like, I, I fucking hate ordinary people, you know. <laughs> it's one of the greatest lines ever in any film. He's like, look at those ordinary people, I fucking hate them. But, yeah, you know, I think his character is equally sort of a rebel in his own way. In a mm. much more subdued way, but he, he is also very much an outsider of society. I can, I can, see, I can see your point, yeah. As is all of the repo men in their own way, you know, they kind of build their own little, you know, group of people, and they're all, you know, quite strange sort of outsiders. Mm-hmm. It's this collection of, like, weird characters. You don't really... You couldn't really bump into those on the street. Or maybe you could in Los Angeles, I don't know. <laughs> you probably could bump into anything in L.A. Yeah. Um... You also have uh, Otto, the Estevez character, um, and he comes across for me in the beginning as this kind of lack of empathy, misanthropic nature, doesn't really show any emotion, doesn't really do anything unless it's convenient for him. And you mentioned this last time around that he really does go through a change. And I can, when I think about that uh, retrospectively, I can think about. I can see how he, in the end, he kind of decides to be happy and he decides to actually do something that he wants, not because everyone else is pushing this view on him. It just, just does gets in the car out of like pure bliss. Yeah, and you know, goes and has his uh, his Hawaiian adventure. Yeah, <laughs> like that cosmic adventure. Yeah, uh, but how do you feel about um, Otto's character? Is is that Kind of, do you find any relation to him, or do you find any connection to him? I, I actually find much more connection to the Harry Dean character, personally. Okay. In what way? I just I think a lot of the stuff he says, and, and actually um, Miller as well, you think both of them are really spot on a lot of the time with sort of the fake philosophy that they spout. Mm. And I, 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 you know, I, I kind of subscribe to the, to the idea that... Um, the more you drive, the less intelligent you are, and that's a brilliant. And I think that's somewhat true. The more you, the more you drive, the less intelligent you are. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I'm not sure I'm following you. The more you drive, yeah, yeah. There's there's, there's a line where, where he's like, because uh, Miller, the, sort of the, I guess I don't know, I, the one, the one who, who who goes in the car at the end versus you know the sort of. Idiot, I don't want to say idiot Safan because that, that's not what he is, but you know who I mean, right? Yeah, it comes across as sort of a simpleton. Yeah, I guess. at least, yeah. Yeah. And what he says is, you know, the, the, the more you drive, the less intelligent you are. Okay. Yeah, he's the one who says it. Okay. I thought you said Bud said it, but I, no, no, yeah. That, yeah, yeah I, okay. Which I think is actually somewhat of a quite profound statement and somewhat true. Yeah, the, the, uh, the Miller character is kind of. This mysticism force, um, kind of, he's the only one who's deemed worthy of kind of driving this car in the end. Yeah. And kind of, for me, it's, I like how it works on an immediate 
level uh kind of he's the opposite of everyone else in that he's not really trying to strive for that american dream he's not really striving to make money he's just trying to live life and I mean, what does he even do at the repo place you know he doesn't seem to have any job there i always thought he was sort of a mechanic or something maybe but like he, he doesn't do anything there you know no <laughs> what's kind of uh, great about him and you know he's the one who sees through the, the you know the bullshit of john wayne as well yeah about john wayne being gay yeah, which supposedly is a true story. Yeah, you told me that last time, and I'm, it's yeah, it feels weird to hear to hear you saying that. But uh... He, uh, Alex Cox said it somewhere that you know that's a story he heard. You know, a lot of what's in the film is the stuff he heard from people. Mm. And I, I think you know the funny thing with like a film like Sid and Nancy, uh, which I don't find as um, authentic. As Repo Man, because mm-hmm. he simply wasn't there. I mean, he, Alex Cox was, you know, he, I believe he went to Oxford for a bit, really at the height of punk, and then he ended up going to UCLA for, you know, three years. And, you know, as when I, when I interviewed him, he said, you know, I, you know, I definitely understood the LA punk scene much more than I did, you know, the London punk scene. And I think you definitely can see that in, you know, the, the two very opposite films. Mm. And ironically, Sid and Nancy was like, it, at the time, was like considered this fantastic film. And now, you know, 25 years, 30 years later, you know, it's kind of frowned upon. And he, as he said, it's the worst film he ever made, which is not true by any stretch, but it's definitely not, you know, the, the, his masterpiece, so to speak. I've yet to see Sid and Nancy. It's actually, I have it, I own it back home, but um, I've only seen Walker, I think. Uh, in addition to Reaper Man, Walker is probably the second best thing. That's the film he thinks is the best film he made. So, yeah, for me, that didn't work at all for me. Um, the film sort of plays with that fantasy fiction genre, which is something that I'm not really a fan of uh, in the first place. But when he, in the end, uh, stashed that in Nicaragua. I think it was Nicaragua. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that footage in the end, which sort of cemented the f- fact that he f- I didn't feel like he quite knew what he was doing because he was playing with fantasy and reality, and in the end, he wanted this to feel... I don't know, it, it struck kind of false to me, posting that video footage in the end. It kind of uh, went opposite of the film he was trying to make. No, I, I think what he was trying to make... The point that you know this has been happening for a long time and it's happening still. And I, and it's obviously a very flawed film, but I, I do quite like Walker. I think I think it is probably the second best thing he ever did. I, th- I think he definitely put his heart and soul into it. I think it's been like seven years since the last saw it. I, 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 I watched the other week. I, I've seen it in like since the Criterion came out. So yeah, and I really enjoyed watch rewatching it. So and I think the yeah, soundtrack's okay. wonderful. Yeah. I tried to find it on uh, Hulu Plus, but unfortunately they didn't have it up, so I wasn't able to go around to it this yeah, time. Yeah, it's, it's universal, so... You mentioned Bud being your kind of favourite character and uh, one of your favourite characters, and there's some weird stories about Harry Dean Stanton from the set uh, that I wanted to share with our listeners. Uh, one is that he he wouldn't actually learn his lines 
because he had had Warren Oates on Tulane Blacktop. He no, I believe got, that was Marlon Brando. It was Marlon Brando. Okay, because I I got it mixed up last time, but no, I think uh, that that was Brando's old trick was he wouldn't learn the lines. Yeah, because he got the cue cards as they were filming, and he wanted to do the same. And Cox, he convinced him that it was a breach of uh, SAG contract to not learn your lines. So after that, he had no issue in memorizing those lines. But it's kind of weird how he gets these uh, ideas in his head. Yeah, I mean, he is such a strange character, and that's why I kind of love Harry Dean. He is Mm. totally insane, you know. And it's it's funny that originally Dennis Harper was who they considered who would have been a very different film. Yeah, it would have been. You don't really get that. I don't. It's the weirdness, but Dennis Hopper has that menace also and with him. Manic, you know, menace mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, and, and in some way, you know, Bud is sort of lovable in his own strange way. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, and it's one. And it's one of the two films that Harry Dean really likes that he's made. Okay, which is the other one? Paris, Paris Texas, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> obviously. <laughs> I would think he would uh, he would uh, enjoy Alien as well, but he doesn't. Uh, I that's I, I far interview from the other day, and he said the two favorites were Paris. And I, I think Alien was a difficult shoot. Okay, yeah. So he might have had some bad memories from shooting it. Hmm. Another interesting story that I came across uh, doing research here was that Fox Harris, the actor playing Doctor Parnell. Uh, and he's the doctor driving this nuclear car. He couldn't actually drive a car. <laughs> so this caused some complications in the driving scenes. And the first day that he showed up on set, he drove the car into a bridge. And in another scene, he drove it into a gas station pump. And he also would break into hives because the driving scenes, they made him so nervous. So this... Well, it kind of, it kind of fits the character there. <laughs> yeah, you can, see, you can see him, like, breaking into cold sweats in the film. Well, originally it was going to be Lance Hendrickson. Yeah, this, this isn't such a huge character in the films. So I don't know if it would have changed much, but knowing Lance Hendrickson now, it's uh, weird had, to think of him in that What had he done at that point? I mean, he had been in... Was he in Nashville? I don't think I've seen Nashville yet, no. I think he was in an Altman film early on, uh, mm. but he was still at that time relatively unknown. Mm-hmm. So it would have been interesting to see him in that. Also, um, you caught up uh, or you picked up on this the Scientology dig that Cox has as well, and you mentioned that he has sort of a um, a hatred for this, uh, well, basically much of religion, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, the whole film is, you know, a total critique of religion as well as consumerism, obviously. Mm. You know, you know, the, you know, there's that great line where, where uh, Harry Dean, where Bud says, "I don't want no uh, commies in my car and no Christians either." <laughs> that's a, that's sort of one of the uh, laugh out lines in the film for me. Genius, great! It's a great script. It really is a really good script. Mm. That is true. Has some uh, very like memorable lines, uh, even though I, I feel like the story that's where it kind of falters for me. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's it's a total B movie plot, mm. but that's you know that's what he likes. You know, he's, he did movie yeah. films, so was for the most part was B movies. Mm-hmm. And then when Mark Cousins did it, it became a bit more odd house. Yeah, there were also some alternative endings. Um, one is where. 
also was originally supposed to join some Latin American revolutionaries that we can, I think we see them in their base with the stash of weapons about a third into the movie. I forgot to look for that, but yeah, yeah, it's in there somewhere. Yeah. Uh, and another alternate ending was that the the city was supposed to be annihilated by which, a nuclear which explosion. Which would be kiss me deadly. Yeah. But I, I don't think it really, neither of those two would have really worked for me. Uh, yeah, I, think... you know, I like the fact that you know it's a very ambiguous ending, mm-hmm. and it feels like it's fitting not to get that sort of close-ended thing. You get a kind of open-ended um, sort of spiritual ending, which serves the film as it's been so far. Except for like Kiss Me Deadly in that version of Kiss Me Deadly. Uh, yeah, I mean I can't actually think of a film where the world actually ends and it actually seems. You know, fitting. Yeah, like the only one I can think of is Kaboom, and that didn't. That was just like such a cop out. Did you read that uh, Waldo's Hawaiian Holiday, or did you read the script? No, but but the script you can download it off his site. The, the amount of like films he has supposed to have made is just like ridiculous. Mm. And he's really good about like um, putting them all up on his web websites. Yeah, I mean, obviously none of these films are going to get made, so. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I know that. Um, he, he gave up on Hollywood in like '94 when he tried to make Waldo's Hawaiian Adventure. He was like, "It's in the introduction on the disc." He's like, "We went, me, Ned Smith, and someone else went to uh, you know the executive at Universal was like 22 year old, never seen Repo Man." And they were like, "Yeah, I'll look at the film." And then obviously they never got back to him. <laughs> And by that point, he was already living in Oregon, so he was just like, I don't care. But he's made a few films since then, none of which I've seen. Um, I've Repo s- Chick. I've tried to watch it. Yeah. <laughs> you ever seen The Winner, the film he disowned? Uh, no. That's quite dreadful. Okay. <laughs> it's got a, a, an amazing cast. It's got like Vincent D'Arfrio and Billy Bob Thornton. And he's in it because he he does appear in his own films once in a while. Mm-hmm. Sadly, he's in Reaper Man as well. Yeah, for like a second, he's one of the yeah. mechanics. Um, and he, he did a he did a kind of interesting film called Free Businessman, which is like a discreet uh, charm of the bourgeoisie sort of ripoff. Okay, that's okay. But the last like really good thing he did was Death and the Compass. Yeah, which is quite good. I know that. Um... When he put up um, the the script for Waldo's Hawaiian Holiday, um, a man named Chris Bones, he actually uh, got that script and he got the rights to create a graphic novel out of it. So that's kind of an interesting way of com- of continuing the universe in a in another medium. Uh, I, 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 haven't... I know Terry Gilliam has been offered quite a few times to have some of his unreleased scripts made into comics. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's he's like plagued with yeah, oh yes. production madness. But it looks like he might actually be okay now. Yeah, the Don Quixote film is the, underway. The, I the, think the Amazon deal and de- and uh, Defected Detective. Okay, I haven't heard about that one. Oh, that that it would that sounds like it could be his masterpiece. It's about a detective who goes into the surreal universe to find a kid. Oh. And it's the sounds. It's all the stuff that he basically had had for Brazil, like the whole filing cabinets. 
uh, mm-hmm. scene, which is not in the film, which is on the you know the Triterion cover that's in it, and you know all these bits and bobs from other films. Okay. So it's just like detective story. Yeah. You know, Interesting. Oh. Do you have anything else about Reaper Man that you want to discuss? Uh, how do you feel about sort of the 80s in general? Like 80s films, because there's like this whole like narrative now that like the 80s was this horrible decade for you know American cinema, and I kind of disagree with that. Because like there's this idea that you know that, that that you know the 80s was a time of like real un- of well, you know after Heaven's Gate, you know mm-hmm. they took you know films away from the creative people. Yeah. But at the same time, uh, I think, you know, there's a lot of really creative filmmakers in the 80s. You know, you have really the birth of American independent cinema, mm-hmm. you know, with Jim Jarmusch and Spike Lee and those people. You have, uh, the funny thing with Repo Man is, because um, it was for Universal, uh, at the same time, Rumblefish came out, was coming out. Yeah. And uh, was another film which they really had no idea how to sell. And uh, you have stuff like Brazil, you have, you know, David Lynch, you know, you, you really have a lot of really interesting films coming out. And I think, you know, it's this notion that you know, the 70s was this golden era of American cinema is really untrue, because I think the 80s had equal amount of real creativity. Yeah, you definitely saw um, the up and coming, like most of what we consider... Uh, innovative filmmakers nowadays looking back on the 80s they got their start in the 80s uh, with feature films at least yeah and you also had this kind of it's growing on both ends because on on the on the other end you have the like the blockbuster and the movement that is really growing larger and larger as the years go on but you also get this um these smaller ones with Altman at the end of the seventies as well. Yeah, and that's you know when he does his you know Lionsgate deal where he can you know basically make any film he wants for like a million and a half or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And and you know yeah, I, I really think the eighties will eventually kind of get reevaluated as a really interesting decade in cinema. Yeah, because there was you know I think a really strong wealth of you know really strong American films in that time. I know that. Uh, I'm not really that familiar with like early um, Spike Lee films, um, but he got his start in the eighties as well, didn't he? Yeah. Or yeah. was that the nineties? No, eighty-five. Uh, she's got a habit. Yeah. That was one of the first sort of big indie films. Hmm. And Strange in Paradise was the year before, and that's what actually inspired Spike Lee to kind of make his feature. Okay. You know, so this you know real sort of birth of that whole movement and. You know, and, and I think science fiction in the 80s was at really its peak. Yeah, that I would agree, yeah. You know, you have Brazil. In, in 84, you've got Terminator, Repo Man, Baku Banzai, uh, what else? Uh, 1984, uh, which is mm-hmm. great, um, and at least a couple more. But, you know, it's, it's a real strong you know, amount of really interesting science fiction at that time. Mm. Obviously, Blade Runner in eighty yeah, one. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, Blade Runner. They live. Um, when you know. the thing wasn't that in eighty one as well? Yeah, eighty one or two. No, yeah. eighty two because it was came at the same time as ET. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. And that's why it flopped. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I like ET, but it is what it is. Yeah. And that film used to really scare me when I was a kid. ET. <laughs> yeah. 
Like, <laughs> like, 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 like the last half when like the astronauts come in. Yeah. It's like totally surreal and strange. It's really, you know, when he dies and stuff. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's quite creepy. I think uh, I was more in the line of sadness, uh, which I, never I think he was aiming for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, and Spielberg in the 80s, I mean, he, he had a pretty good run. Yeah, he was definitely more daring for me in the 80s than in the 90s. If we I, I think he went back in the early 2000s and had a really good run as well. Mm-hmm. With AI, and which I think is one of his best films. I would agree. Uh, or maybe not one of his best, but I think it's really underrated. So. Yeah, I think it's a very misunderstood film. Mm. Speaking to the release of uh, Reaper Man itself, um, we got some pretty good special features here with a commentary from Alex Cox and also a video introduction uh, by him as well, which he made for Moss of Cinema. Which is which was the only not in the TV movie a uh, TV version with the two new features that were included on the disc. Mm-hmm. Because the, and the other one were on the old Region One special edition. Yeah. Did you have a chance to uh, visit some of the special features? I didn't get signed to it um, with having I've moved to Denmark uh, in the last month and I've started a new study, so things have been quite hectic for me. So the TV version is is a real sort of riot because all the language is cut out. Yeah. With or, the, uh, or, no, redubbed. I should say. Redubbed. Yeah, the swear words. And the the scene where they do speed is completely cut. So there's like ins and then the next scene. It's like uh, every Reaper Man does speed and then they completely cut like the next four minutes. <laughs> and there's a few bits and bobs which they add in. Like most of the deleted scenes is in that version. And uh, there's that great interview of Harry Dean as well. Yeah, I remember when I first got this release a couple of years ago that uh, I quite enjoyed just watching him be himself. <laughs> it's quite an experience. <laughs> The documentary on him is quite uh, fun. It's not amazing, but it's you know an interesting sort of documentary. Yeah. Called uh, Potley Fiction. Mm-hmm. And he uh, he had an affair with Debbie Harry in the eighties, which is quite impressive. Debbie Harry of the the Blondie, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And also the booklet included uh, in the release is pretty great with um, storyboards from the film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, he always had sort of a comic book sort of vibe to it. Uh, I mean, he he actually uh, worked on some comic book films. Actually, Alex Cox. Um, okay. He, he wrote a draft of Mars Attacks in the eighties, okay. and he had he signed on to a version of Doctor Strange in the eighties as well. And I believe both scripts you can download off his website. Interesting. And he's, he's, the, he's the guy who was like, oh, we should make a film with Mars Attacks. He was like, the big fan of the Tatum cards. Yeah. And then Tim Burton obviously did it years later. Yeah. Um, when he said that comic books were an influence on the film, I can definitely see like some Robert Crumb uh, in Repo Man. Yeah. With just yeah. That, that observational Los Angeles life and that those kind of weird uh, comments that he makes. Yeah. yeah. He, he, and Crumb, obviously... And, and his, his influence is all over. And even David Lynch, you can see a lot of Robert Crumb and Lynch as well. Yeah. And, and, and David Lynch produced the documentary as well. But Crumb is just one of the greatest films ever made. Love yeah. That, love that film so much. Okay, so um, wrapping up this uh, episode, where can the listeners find you on the internet? Uh, People's Movies. Uh, I just did a thing on Roger Haas, who did Hourglass Sanatorium and the Sarah Ghost Manuscript. That was my that's my latest little piece I wrote because those just came out on Blu-ray. Uh, 
So all my reviews are on there. I've got a Twitter, which I don't use much, but maybe if people follow me, I might actually use it. And you can find me on Facebook. I've been the first Ian Schultz. It's not the most common name on the planet. So. Thank you so much for joining me, Ian. No problem. Anytime. And listeners, you can follow us at uh, moccast.blogspot.com. You can send us an email at mastercinemacast at gmail.com. Um, find us on Twitter and Facebook. Just search for Master Cinemacast. And uh, we'll be back, hopefully, with Tom next time. Uh, so thank you for listening and goodbye.